Morning, guys. Bless you. Thank you for coming today. And um, yeah, I just want to ask Holy Spirit that you'd come today and make yourself known to to people's hearts, that you would touch hearts and minds today. And as we're saying, open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we might see you, that we might see you as the great prize and treasure that you are. And I pray that Jesus will be made much of through my, my preaching today and through the, the worship. And Lord, I pray that you would guide me from error and that you would put your words in my mouth. Amen. Okay, so I get, I get mocked occasionally because um, of how I worship God and uh, no one else. But we spoke a couple weeks ago about how every single person is born a worshiper. It's just about what you worship, who you worship. And there are lots of people who mock me for my worship of God, um, my singing, dancing, and my, my love of him. Um, what they don't realize, though, is they sing and dance and worship kings of Leon. But I sing and dance and I worship the king of kings. And today, for some of you sitting here, it was uncomfortable in the singing, and it was uncomfortable in the silences. And for some of you, it was sweet. It was sweet. And so today is an invitation for your, your life to be made sweet. Um, <clears throat> it's awesome because uh, I don't think Janet knew that I was going to be preaching on joy. This seems to happen a lot, but she, she put that scripture up about how Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And I'm preaching today on the joy of the Lord. And precisely that, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for our sake and for his glory's sake. And also that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, I want to start with a little, a little preamble. We, we discussed again a few weeks ago that there's only two objective facts that matter in the world. One God is. And we, we said that there's nothing more foundational, nothing more central, and nothing more consummate than this fact. And we also said that there is no way to the Father, this God, except through Christ Jesus the righteous, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to tell you today that to say that God is dead, or to say that there is no God, or that nature is God, or that there are many paths to God, are suicidal assertions. You see, the future of the universe and all life in it will, will not be determined by nature or chance or evolution or a random series of events, nor the wisdom or the will of man, but will stand finally on the counsel, the might, the will, the glory, and the power of God, who was and is and is to come. One of my favorite scriptures is 1 Chronicles 16, verse 26, which says, this is the Lord speaking, for all the gods of your peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And as I mentioned also a few weeks ago, atheism, polytheism, agnosticism, and all other beliefs are simply temporary conditions which will be, they will be resolved at the coming of Christ where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. 
And today, if you don't hold these two great truths as foundational, central, and consummate to your life, then my prayer is that the Lord will open the eyes of our hearts, as we sang earlier, and that you might come to a saving knowledge and experience of the mighty counselor, Christ Jesus the righteous. So today, I have the privilege, and I do mean privilege, of speaking today about my view of biblical joy, my understanding of biblical joy, and that it's a joy in Christ that's freely available. It's a joy that's all-satisfying. It's a joy that's required by God, and it's a joy that's eternal. So, as I said, all the gods are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, a small statue cannot save you. And I won't do any other gods the honor of mentioning their name, for it is total folly to even dwell in turning away from the fountain of living water to select a statue who will only multiply your sorrow to eternal suffering. You see, there are no other religions, there are no other gods, only deceptions to distract you, preoccupations to withhold life from you. And I will never, for one day of my life, not tell this truth, because there are lives at stake. And today, if you're not a Christian, this is showing you what you're made for, so it's good news. In fact, it's the best news that there is. And if you are a Christian, it's good news because it's the basis for your endurance in faith. It is life-sustaining truth to the church, and it is life-bringing and saving truth to the lost. I want to begin today by encouraging us by saying that desire for happiness and for joy is something that we all have completely in common. Every single person is searching for joy and happiness. Even people who kill themselves or want to kill themselves because what they're trying to do is alleviate themselves from suffering. So in one way or another, they are seeking happiness and joy. And this is not a bad thing. It's our dodgy pursuits of where happiness and joy come from that are problems. You may have heard words like satisfaction, fulfillment, pleasure, happiness, all these things, and we somehow we put some sort of turn on them as if they're inherently negative, but they're not. They're from God, and they need to be pursued from his, his ways. So our desire for happiness is not to be suppressed. That's not what this Christian life is about. It's about glutting this desire on God who is all-satisfying all and able to save you. And we'll look at why this is shortly. Also, another bit of good news is that there's no necessary conflict between what God desires and what is best for us. In fact, they're resolved in each other. We spoke a couple of weeks ago also about how God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And this is true because what completely satisfies us, right, is glorious. So if he's not enough for you, what does that say about him? But if he's more than enough, he's all satisfying, he is glorified. So our joy glorifies God. And this gospel is fantastic news because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but a way has been made for us. And this way of salvation, of escaping eternal joylessness and suffering and 
is into a, a life of glorifying God in eternal joy. And this gospel announces to us the wondrous truth that God's glorification and, and uh, his holiness are not in conflict with our happiness. There's also some biblical tension around joy, the reason being because God commands it. He commands us to be joyful. And the problem with us as humans is that um, we don't like to be told to do anything at all. Right? But we do like to be happy and joyful. So it's like, I like what you're commanding me to do, but I don't like that you're commanding me to do it. And that's pride. We'll look at that later. It, this, this truth, it has the tension because it requires a submission to an authority. And our nature resists this. But by the Holy Spirit, we can embrace this truth and come to full and everlasting joy in, in, in Jesus. So what is this joy? There's a Christmas song that I absolutely love that really sums this up for me. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. Heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Okay. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Your joy is in receiving your king. And there are people here who have sung that song, that song for decades and have never actually heard the words. <laughs> Hear the words today. Our joy is absolute satisfaction in the coming of Christ. He is perfect, he is pleasing, and he's all-sufficient. When referring to the glory of God, we live in a world of extreme vagaries and tiptoeing and political correctness. So when we're referring to the glory of God, we need to make it clear that we are referring to Jesus, the bloody, perfect spectacle of blameless sacrifice, who humbled himself for our life, which it says in Philippians 2, 6-8. All things were created for him. Colossians 1.16. And his bloody death is the blazing center of the glory of God. Eternal life and joy is not about a heaven full of mirrors to look at yourself, nor a heaven full of golf courses, nor a heaven full of a hundred virgins. It is John 17.3, to know God, and that's it. To know God, to know Jesus, and to be with him forever. And nothing, nothing else can satisfy the soul because you, your soul was meant to stand in awe of a person forever. What, when the Holy Spirit touches us, what was once absolute foolishness to us becomes our wisdom, our power, and our boast as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 24. One moment in the anointing, one touch from the Holy Spirit will turn a mocker into a minister. One second, one touch. And I pray, Lord, that you would make that touch today. Our message has become so, so, so twisted that we tell people they need to deny satisfaction and turn to Jesus. What an oxymoron. Are they saying that Jesus is not satisfying? It's such an ill-informed perspective of what faith is. It is to t 
turn from eternal to destru- destruction to eternal satisfaction, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And in this world, we've got a problem where we're, we're taught that being loved being, means being made much of. But being, being loved is the opportunity, the privilege, and the command to make much of Christ in our lives. And what the world does for us in making us feel good and esteeming us is it, it turns us away from God. In fact, it takes us to the top of the Alps with a perspective of the whole of the world and then locks us in a small box with a mirror. So all you have, you might be on the, on the top of the world, but all you can see is yourself. So it turns you away from the glory and the majesty of God and turns you inward to look at yourself, which is the path to destruction. And I want to tell you that it says in Romans 1 that because God has revealed himself in creation, every single person is without excuse. And it says that some people so suppress the truth that they can convince them God, to themselves that God did not make what they see. And God says they will be righteously judged. And it will be completely just and fair because they've actually suppressed the truth. Because they looked at the stars one day and they went, wow. No, 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 my friend told me this is all um, whatever. The disproportion between the universe and us is not to diminish us, but to highlight the glory and the majesty and the, and the, and the greatness of God. And that should be a comfort to us. If he is so great, I am so secure. If I'm in him. But if I'm not, do you think he will not avenge his glory? He's a glorious, holy God, and he invites you to be with him forever. But he is glorious and holy, and he will be righteous. And that's why it says in in, um, Romans 1 that um, because of the suppression of the truth, his, his wrath is being poured out on all unrighteousness. And that's completely just and true because he is perfect and holy and glorious. And not a single person will stand before God and say, but you didn't tell me, no one told me. And he'll say, I'm not rejecting you. You rejected me when I imaged myself forth in my son and set the glory of it before you in creation. And you'll be without excuse. You'll be without excuse. And he will be completely just in his judgment. But... God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So how do we obtain this joy? Psalm 16 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. With eternal pleasures, I will be at your right hand. So we will be filled eternally forever. So, one, this joy begins with our understanding of the defiling of God's glory. And hardly any of the preaching today lays the foundation for our falling short of the glory of God, which is in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our starting point. And then it continues with the centrality of God's glory, his excellence, sovereignty, perfection, beauty, wisdom, power, and worth are all the central issues of Scripture. And without this, we can't understand the the gravity of the atoning work of Jesus. It says in Acts 17.25 that essentially there's nothing you can do, but he will serve you. It says, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men and breath 
to all men, life and breath and everything. And you see, the problem with this is if you say, well, I have to do X, Y, and Z in order, what you're saying is God needed something from you. And what God is God who needs something. He needs nothing, but he is so gracious and kind and loving. He, he came to serve. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And this joy is resolved in leading us to the purpose of life. You see, everyone wants to know why they exist. And we should not prostitute the truth of why people exist in order to manipulate some kind of confession of, of belief in, in Jesus. Because in Isaiah 43, 7, it says, He created men and women for his glory. And a life that does not glorify God is a wasted life. Anything falling short of this is a, a complete travesty and a dragging of the name of Jesus through the mud. And unless people know that their lives are at cross purposes with God's ultimate will so that they can repent, they're entirely wasting their lives. And an illustration I'd like to give is, say you have a, like a one-year-old and you give them a pen, coloring in pen. They've never seen one before and the lid's tightly on. To them, this is something to chew or throw. But if they can open the lid, they will spend forever joyfully coloring in. Because this thing now has a purpose. And I want to put it to you that things can only be enjoyed when, they, when you know how to use them and what they're for. And the same goes for our lives. This includes you. Because he knitted you together in your mother's womb, individually. And there might be people here whose parents told them, well, you were a mistake. Well, your parents don't know the truth. Because God, it says God knew you before the foundation of the world. He actually handmade you. Everything about you. Your life is not the arbitrary result of an endless mutation of a clam. Instead, he made you personally, specifically, accurately to reflect his glory and to be satisfied in him forever. So this is why every man, woman, and child should devote his or her life to the glorification of God by enjoying Him. This is what your life is for. Now, I know for a fact now that some of the things that I'm talking about, the scriptures I've read, you've heard before, and I know for a fact that there are some people who are, uh, their pulse is racing, and their heart is thumping, and they feel a bit sick in their stomach, and there's a fire in your head, or you are shaking. And I just bless this work of God and I say, Lord, continue it. How is it that we cannot find this joy outside of Christ? I've got a couple reasons for you. Firstly, and this is the fundamental one, the all, all the rest are just branches of this, but it's, it's evil. is the main reason we cannot find joy outside of Christ. And the scripture here is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. And two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, this is what evil is, if you've ever wanted a definition. Evil is putting your lips to the fountain of life, which is God, and going, yuck! And putting your mouth to the dirt and saying, it's got to be here, it's got to be here, it's got to be here. And every other evil is born from that. That you would reject the fountain of life. Yuck! And you would search in the dirt for your satisfaction in your life. 
Another reason is idolatry. We labor and we strive without joy because we take more pleasure in God's gifts than in God. That's all idolatry is. We think that if we make this thing we love so much the center of our lives, we'll have enjoyment. But do you know what will happen if you move the sun out of our solar system? All the planets crashing into each other because something is, all those things are great, but they're meant to be in orbit around something. Something has to give gravity, otherwise there's no order, and these things will implode. How many of you have planets in your life crashing into each other because Jesus is not at the center? Another reason is pride. We spoke about it earlier. It's about turning away from God and to ourselves, rejecting the all-sufficiency of Christ. And we revel in our passion and our ability and our intelligence and our enthusiasm and our cash. But nothing could be done to earn what you have in the first place. So how can you possibly not be humble about it? Because you may think that it's your works that bought you those, those things, but they're fleeting. And they're gone. That's why it says it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because what's at the center of your life? It's your cash. And that thing is fleeting. It's gone. All those other things will just, as they touch the fire, the holiness and glory of God, they just incinerate. They're nothing. You can't, what can you take through to the kingdom of God? And uh, I want to put it to you that the end of pride is the beginning of joy because you're turning away from self-satisfaction right, which is the road to destruction, and turning you to Jesus, who is totally satisfying. Another thing is blindness and hardness of heart. Like we, we often read in the Bible things like, they had eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Or they were, they were hardened at heart. And so eyes that do not see say things like, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. I, this is nowhere near as fun as TV. And hardness of heart says, well, you don't know what I've been through. I've, I've had so, you don't even know the stories of the stuff that happened to me in my life growing up. Well, you don't know what he went through when he died on the cross with the weight of everything that you're carrying for every person on the whole world at the same time that you could be liberated from it. So that thing, self-pity is like the crux of pride. It robs you of joy. Hypocrisy. If I sing, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. But his face isn't all I seek. I'm a liar and a hypocrite. How can I have joy in that? But he wants to direct you to, for him to be, his face to be all that you seek. And then you can sing those things and you will be not lying. And you will have joy. Sexual immorality. The shocking and various violation of God's design for sex and marriage renders everyone in deep sorrow. Our impurity places us at horrendous odds in view of the comparison of the purity and the holiness that is in Christ. But there is good news. When we trust in Jesus, he gives us our, his righteousness and his blood washes us white as snow. That there will never be a single day of condemnation in the rest of your lives that you can ascend the hill of the Lord because you have clean hands and a pure heart. But he does it. We don't. Two more of these. Uh, apathy and being dispassionate. So contrary to popular counsel, it's not that God finds your desires too strong. It's that he finds your desires too weak. You are too easily satisfied. I am too easily satisfied by 
what's it? Game of Thrones or something like that. I don't watch that anymore, but um, I used to be. Too easily. That was me. I just come home. I've had a hard day at work. I, want to, I just want to lie down and, and, and veg. And there's nothing wrong with rest. But the thing is, I was finding my satisfaction in the TV, which is very easily. But my desires were too weak for God. Now, so our, our, our preoccupation with momentary and marginal pleasures are ridiculous in the face of eternal, infinite joy that is offered to us forever. And I do mean ridiculous. Here's another example. If you're a Christian, or if you're not, and you'd rather hang out with people who aren't Christians, I have two questions to ask you. One, do you know any Christians? If you'd rather hang out with people who are Christians, you need to ask yourself, do I know any Christians? I don't mean churchgoers. I mean radical, hey? No? If you'd rather hang out with people who aren't Christians, yes? Oh, aren't Christians? Yes, sorry. Do you know any Christians? Because, as I said, I'm not talking about churchgoers. I'm talking about radical people who have laid down their lives because of what God has done for them. And I want to describe what they're, what they're like. Jesus has, has freed them from their slavery to ego, power, sex, money, alcohol, and all the other things. And they are the salt and the light. They are zesty. They are life-bringing. They are full of unshakable peace and joy. And they are radically flavorsome to have around. Perhaps your friends have a bumper sticker on their car that says, I love Jesus. But they actually have a bumper sticker on their life that says, I'm satisfied fully by the world. And... Yeah, I mean, that bumper sticker says things like, I, I love the pleasures that the world has to offer, my car, my job, my TV, my rugby. It's why our ministry is weak. It's because it lacks the unshakable confidence in the all-satisfyingness and, and the complete goodness of God. Jane's protecting herself with a chair there from the, from the onslaught. <laughs> um, and, and then two, why would it be that you could find more joy in people whose central joy isn't your joy? How can you be attracted to live without a radical preference for God? And I mean, we love everybody. We are friends with everybody. But I am saying, what is your preference when it comes to it? What's at the core of what you believe about God? A final one about why we don't have this joy is because we, we strive with no, no resolution. We are teased. There's some sort of carrot dangling that the world offers But all these things, when you add them up, they can never sum to satisfaction. They, they, they compute, they add up, they calculate in the eternal sense to nil. And for now, they're just completely unsatisfying. I also want to look at why this joy is eternal. principal scripture for this is uh, John 16 verse 22. He says, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So how is it that Jesus can make such a guarantee that our joy will not be taken from us? Well, one, the resurrection means that Jesus will never die, because he rose victorious Death, we sang earlier, is defeated. Death, where is your sting? The grave could not contain him. 
And two, the resurrection means that whoever believes in him will not die. Because it says in John eleven twenty five to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And that's the only way you can have eternal joy. One, the source of your joy is eternal. And two, that you are. So if either of those things aren't true, your joy is temporary, it's transient. And this is the main phrase. Joy is not born of your circumstances, but of your convictions about Christ. So if you're a Christian, then this is blessed assurance that Jesus and joy are yours forever. And if you're not, then this is an invitation from God for eternal life and joy everlasting in him. So I commend to you this morning, Jesus, whoever you are, if he is not the joy of your heart, he wants to be and he should be. He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Never. This is a, a, a promise of an unbroken line of satisfaction in Jesus from now through to all eternity. I pray that it's crystal clear to you this morning that it is not too late, and it is not too early to have this joy. In fact, it's God's promise to you in 1 Peter 1, 7-9 and John 15, 11, that in Christ we have joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. It is the word of the Lord to you this morning that he has made you for joy, for his glory, and that he desires that you would be with him forever. So let us pray. I pray that the God of all righteousness, peace, joy, and holiness will call you to himself and bring you all the life, the grace, the peace, and the fullness of joy that is in Jesus Christ, the the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you will come and complete your work that you've been doing this morning. We thank you that you're here to lift up and make known to us the name of Jesus. That you yourself commend Jesus to us. And I pray for hearts that are broken and hearts that are struggling that you will come and touch our hearts today, Lord. That you would bring us the joy of the Lord that's complete, unspeakable, full of glory, and can be our strength for now and forever. And as the worship team carries on with a song or two, um, if you need prayer for healing, um, if you're sick, something's broken, if your heart is broken, if your mind is broken, if your soul is shattered in pieces, um, or if there's anything else that you want prayer for, 
then I would like you to, to come. There will be people all around and that you can just come and come and, and pray with. But I also would like to invite you to come and do what Jane is doing because at the name of Jesus, Jane's knee bows. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess yes, that Lord. Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus. And I have the privilege... I bow my knee willingly now. Mm. And not because I'm forced to. And you know, God will not grab you and force your knee to the floor. You will fall to the floor at the majesty and the glory of God. One day, it, it will happen. It will happen. But His invitation is now, and that today is the day of salvation. If it's been wishy-washy for you in life, come, come to and Jesus. receive the fullness of joy and the life and life abundant that's in Jesus.